0: This is the Collective Evolution Show, I'm Joe Martino. Good day, I know I sound a little stuffy here, but thankfully you'll only be hearing my voice like this for the introduction as I'm just getting over a cold and the actual episode sounds fantastic. Um, if you're feeling a little bit fatigued, uh, navigating all the new- news and everything during COVID, you're certainly not alone. I know personally a lot of people who are going through this feeling and, and really feel like they've kind of wanted to give up on trying to track everything that's going on. But you know, given what has happened over the last few years, Is this the right decision that we should be making? Should we really be saying it's time to stop paying attention? Now, this is a tough question, of course, because in many ways, it's healthy to know when to say enough is enough, as we really don't want to drive ourselves crazy. But at the same time, when the stakes are as high as they are right now, and with everything that's going on and and the rise in authoritarianism that we've seen during COVID, surely we have to stay in the game. Do we not? I don't know, this is a question we're gonna to explore today. My guests today are Dr. Manava Seti and David Helfrich. Manava is a physician who has been actively engaged in examining and reporting on COVID-related literature since the onset of the pandemic. And David is a lawyer who has been curiously reflecting on the nature of COVID restrictions and their effect on rights, as well as much of the COVID literature in general. We'll talk in this episode about COVID news fatigue, the value of information, Uh, some key takeaways we must consider when we're looking at uh, the COVID era era in general, and we'll also get into a deeper set of philosophical and metaphysical questions asking whether or not COVID has applied an evolutionary pressure of sorts for the consciousness of humanity. So without further ado, my friends, here is my conversation with Dr. Madhavasedhi and David Helfrich. Alright, good to see you guys again. You know, it's been a bit since we got to catch up and I know we, uh, we have our more offline conversations, but, you know, speaking of those conversations, we, you know, I kind of wanted to check in a little bit here on a bit more of like a personal level because I think a lot of people can relate to this idea that, you know, with, with COVID kind of being where it's at. And in all the areas that it touched our lives, whether it be a disruption in our employment and our finances and our relationships and our ability to move freely. um, But also with our, you know, our state of being and our mental health and our emotions, you know, I'm curious to hear from you guys, because I know this has come up uh, in some of our conversations. Like, you know, where do you how do you feel about the state of where things are at, you know, after the two years, um, you know, that we've just been through, like what comes to mind?
1: Well, you know, I think the the first thing, first of all, it's good to be with you both again, brothers. It's definitely always nice to share space. Um, I think picking up off our conversations, one thing that's been very clear to me in the past couple of years is just how tribal COVID has um, sort of divided us into different identities and different schools of thought and even probably drawn wedges between families, close friends, people who before COVID were considered to be, you know, best friends or on good terms. And now this has been yet another thing that has sort of created division amongst us to draw a line. I, th- I think identities have been um, transformed through COVID as well. And it's also caused a lot of people to rethink how they view the world, how they view power, how they view each other. Um, and regrettably, I think that's created a lot more separation amongst us than brought us, than bringing us together.
2: Well, I I think that um, I've sort of, we've sort of had a unique situation compared to the kind of havoc that COVID has wreaked upon society. I mean, Jill and I are uh, in contact with many people who have had to uh, make massive sacrifices, you know, on, on both sides. With regards to friends, but also with regards to employment and uh, school for their children, and um, you know, thankfully, we've had the resources to to move around the country and find different uh, communities. Um, But it's affected me um, primarily because you know um, I've been uh, working for Children's Health Defense for five or six months, and by the way everything I express here is my own view. It's not children's health defense. Um, I want to say that right up front. Um, And I found that uh, trying to, you know, research and write about these things has been um, a huge, um, hugely invasive um, activity in my life. I mean, I thought about it 24 seven. And what I really came to was that um, it it was frustrating because no matter what you write or whatever you say out there, most of the feedback, as you probably know, Joe, especially is often very negative. You know, all the people that support what you're saying and doing, they don't say much and you just get a lot of uh, negative feedback and you know, that doesn't really bother me so much. But the problem is that we can't have conversations with the other side. Um, and that's what's missing. And that's why I found, uh, I've taken a few weeks off to come back to the East coast and it's been, um, relaxing, you know, I can sleep better and I'm just really tired of trying at screaming at the wind.
0: Yeah. It's an interesting sort of parallel, you know, and I, I, I took five weeks off as you both know, um, at the beginning of May. Uh, for the kind of the very reason that I think I was not only, you know, fatigued from 14-ish years of, of kind of being in the media world, although I feel like I took care of myself pretty damn good for most of those years. Um, you know, I was fatigued from some of that, but, but COVID and, you know, the nature of, of doing media in this space and and kind of always feeling like every time you come to something, there's like another piece of information that like brings you back into some level of uncertainty and, and, and in an effort to try and be as like objective and really kind find what's going on. Uh, it becomes exhausting to navigate it. And um, so I, you know, I took a, took a break as well. And I definitely found that piece that you're talking about Madhava. Um, but you know, in a lot of this, it, it comes back to information, right? So it's like, what, like from your guys perspective, like what role has information actually played in changing I guess people's minds like has it um has it changed a lot of people's minds that you've seen or have people almost said well you know regardless of the information I still feel this like what, what what experiences have you had with that
1: well you know I think when it comes to the information we're at a point where most people particularly people who have a passionate view on this um the cake is kind of baked I, I don't think there's any information that's going kind of dissuade somebody or change somebody's mind, which is unfortunate, right? Because if you look at even the data around COVID, it's constantly changing. There's always nuance to for the discussion to be had. But I think generally people's fundamental views remain the same. Um, but what also has created a lot of complexity and problems is the mass censorship that's come across, which has first of all made people lose a lot of trust in not just journalistic institutions, but government institutions but just the idea that there are things we can't discuss and within the realm, even of the scientific community, I'm not even just talking about Twitter, I'm talking about physicians and people who are experts in this field of immunology are not able to discuss certain things throughout the course of the pandemic, which has sold a lot of distrust and has even um, contributed, I think, to the division that you, that you see amongst a lot of people. But when it comes to the information, you know, another issue I see is that There's a lot of thrill-seeking as well when it comes to the conspiratorial side of this. It's one thing to be out there seeking the truth on what's happening with the vaccines, what's what's happening with COVID, what's happening with the overarching government institutional response to it, whether you're talking about surveillance or you're talking about exerting more control, peeling back civil liberties. But then there's also this sort of camp that I think is exploiting this tragedy to create even more chaos. And what do I mean by that? I mean, you'll, you'll see viewpoints of those who are saying listen if you got vaccinated you're no longer human you're essentially a genetically modified human that is now owned now the corporations have a patent over you and this kind of stuff actually you think it's just fringe but it actually becomes mainstream within some of the conspiratorial communities so i see a lot of hyperbole and then on the flip side you've got those in the main thesis side of it not the antithesis side so the mainstream viewpoint who are not able to admit any flaw in the data that they presented or admit any problem with the vaccines or admit that the vaccines aren't nearly as efficacious as they purported initially. So when you have people who aren't able to admit when they're wrong, or you have people who are exploiting tragedy and chaos for different views, that creates a situation where it's very difficult to know what the truth is. And I think most people if they're not covering this every day, like you are, they are lost in the wilderness of, the, of this pandemic.
2: Yeah, that's right. That's right, I agree wholeheartedly. I, I would add that um, the information, uh, your original question is what information, what role does information have to play? Um, the role it plays is becoming uh, smaller and smaller. I, I believe that is for, in fact the truth. I also believe that the information is not nearly as nuanced as it was eight, nine months ago, where there was many more unknowns. Uh, and uh, right now, like, I'm completely convinced that um, the, the, the information is very, uh, that proves not only are these vaccines, um, not only do they not work, they, they're, they're dangerous. And uh, I want to say by dangerous, I'm saying the, the danger of them has not yet been, um, ascertained, but it looks like in the long run, it is going to be more dangerous, um, than I thought it was going to be a year ago. And, uh, so, so here's the thing is that when you, when you offer that sort of statement, it is going to be immediately rejected out of hand by many people. Uh, because it's an uncomfortable idea to contend with. Um, and look, there's information out there, but if, if, if your foundational basis for coming to an understanding of something is based on one or two sources that all say the same thing, it it doesn't matter what the information is. You're just going to look at a subset of the information. And, you know, David, I I agree with you. I mean, the other side, if you will, we can look at both sides the same way, right? Um, Everybody's focused on their uh, uh, source. But here's what I think is very interesting about this, which is, you know, uh, and I, I think we've hit upon this before, both sides are almost mirror images of each other. You know, both sides think that the other side is listening to the wrong information. Both sides think that the other side is incredibly naive. And gullible for listening to the wrong information right but there is a very important distinction between these two sides um which is one side is pleading for a debate and the other side is justifying censorship like that side should not be listened to that is an enormous distinction to make um and it needs to be uh considered because we're talking about things that are beyond most people's cognition or uh, most people's capacity to understand. So much of public opinion is determined by faith in a certain media source. It's like, I I don't understand gain of function. I don't understand vaccine efficacy. I don't understand bias and data. So please someone just tell me what the answer is. And you just go to that one source and you say, what is the answer? It's happening on both sides. But we have to always remember that the vaccine cautionary sphere which i'm a um advocate for uh is asking can you just give us a voice can you you know instead of like you know sanjay gupta why don't you bring on another physician uh to talk things out with you that disagrees with you and not the average joe uh down the street who you know has an uncle that had a vaccine injury and now he doesn't want to get vaccinated you know that that is a clear distortion and it's pointing towards a, um, a a motive. So uh, information, I don't know what it means anymore. You know, it's hard to validate anything.
0: I want to, I want to unpack some of your statements a little bit um, with regards to the vaccine, with regards to, you know, you stating that it's obviously dangerous and all that sort of stuff. Before we get there though, I I, table that just for one second. I kind of want to go to this idea that is sort of wrapped up in another statement that was made, which was, you know, at this point, information may not be as important, i.e. Um, it feels like, you know, as David said, you know, the cake is baked for a lot of people and, you know, we're not going to change our minds. So it's what is the value of information um, with that as a sort of a boilerplate? Here's the question. Um, a lot of people are COVID fatigued. Right. I, you know, I just want to move on from it. I, I it doesn't matter. It's pretty much over now. Um, so to speak. Hey, maybe there might be some stuff coming in the fall, you know, but a lot of people want to move on. They almost want to forget about it. They almost want to like, what can we change now? Uh, With that said, you know, is it important that we have this conversation about vaccines and their danger? Like, what do you make of still talking about COVID in this moment?
1: Well, you know, for me, I I think we've kind of developed into this hypochondriac culture, I think that when the pandemic started, you know, the officials and then people who went along with the official narrative were grossly overstating the danger of COVID-19 infection, particularly for younger people and low risk people. And many of them still have been reluctant to even walk back some of those erroneous statements. But I also think people are grossly overstating the danger of the vaccines. Now, are the vaccines safe? That depends on your definition of safe, right? You, there are adverse events that happen from taking a vaccine, just as there are adverse events that happen from taking almost anything. So, But when you look at, what are we at? I don't know, 12, 13 billion doses. If there was inherent danger in these vaccines, we would be seeing, in my view, a lot more conditions that were mainstream, that weren't just something that you could actually look at and say, well, that's less than 1% of the people who took something. Um, if, if they were dangerous in the sense that, listen, these are unsafe products that are causing, that are hazardous to people's health, I think we'd be seeing a lot more evidence bear out now. Now, is saying he believes that will happen down the line. But I wonder, even with that perspective, is whether we're two, three years into it, You know, given that you know, most adverse events and, and hazardous side effects occur, pretty close after vaccination for saying that this is sort of a time release thing then I, I wonder what we're what that does to the overall psychology of humanity when we're kind of thinking that you know billions of people are now ticking time bombs even though we have no we can't really point to any evidence and and Mado, if you can present some evidence that says well three five ten years down the line this is going to happen I'd love to see it but I, I wonder if we, if we become, Hypochondriacs to the point of we are overstating the danger of all of these of COVID nineteen around us. When in fact, the biggest dangers we face are not related to COVID nineteen, in my view.
0: Yeah, just just before we unpack some of those dangers a little more, I just want to sort of reframe just one for one second, um, sort of to that question of uh, like. You know, I know you and you and I, Madhava. We just kind of expressed this a bit how we've kind of become exhausted and fatigued from <laughs> going through this data and understanding this stuff and trying to understand it uh, at a level that really attempts to say what decisions should be made at a policy level, at a at a you know when it comes to COVID and so on and so forth. You know, we've become exhausted. Is it still important? that w- knowing what it can do knowing how tired it can make you is it still important to, to to talk through this can we really expect the greater society to continue to want to put their energy into this or should we be listening to our fatigue and saying maybe we need to put this on pause yes
2: that's a very thoughtful question and the utility of continuing to discuss it despite the fatigue that we're both enduring or we're all enduring um is uh, something that has not necessarily something to do with the data, it has, it has to do with the freedom to choose. And we are at a point right now where, you know, 70% of adults uh, have accepted this therapy, but we're only at around 30% for, you know, kids between five and 11. And now we're going after, I don't say going after, but now it's being authorized for infants. Um, And so this is, this is why it's important to continue to uh, fight the fight. because what, and this has to do with what's gonna happen in three years. And David, like, I, I don't know, but we were never gonna know if everyone gets vaccinated. So that's why it's important to continue to discuss these things and, you know, look at it over and over again. What's new? What, what are the possibilities as, you know, David uh, acquiesced, there's, you know, it's, it's an over uh, exaggerated danger of vaccine to the young. So let's not vaccinate the young so that we can see because, you know, as we all know, these trials uh, effectively ended after just a few months, even though they're supposed to go on for two years because they vaccinated everybody after a brief uh, period of observation. So we can't look at trial date anymore. We have to look at what's happening with the population. That's why it's absolutely essential that uh, we prevent as many um, inoculations as possible in the younger. Uh, people. Um, and that's why it's important to keep talking, even though very often it seems like we're screaming at the wind.
0: Right, right. Yeah, it's a... Uh... David, do you have anything to add to that?
1: Well, I, I agree with Mada, but I think there is a lot of utility in continuing to discuss it, I mean, for many reasons, but I think the most important one is so that we, as a global community, can acknowledge that there were many great mistakes being made by our by our leaders, government officials um, here in the United States, the CDC, the NIH, they made many mistakes. So if we don't talk about it and we don't keep an eye on what's happening um, throughout the course of the pandemic and even many years after, we'll never have a chance to address those errors and make sure that this doesn't happen again. So I, do, I don't think we should end the conversation by any means. Um, but I do think we need to have the conversation in a way that's not overly sensationalistic and and hyperbolic, which I, I still I still see is the case. And I do also agree with Madhava that when you look at the mainstream, if we're talking about if, if we're talking about Sanjay Gupta and CNN as a mainstream, you're right. They have been reluctant to have any kind of intellectual honesty or open debate. That is a problem. I think echo chambers in general are a problem, and I see that happening on the alternative side as well, because there are people with huge platform platforms on the alternative side who also aren't embracing those debates. So until we get out of our respective echo chambers, have the discussions we're having right now, it's going to be very hard to build any bridges.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I agree with the concept. I mean, I've, I have I've questioned, you know, our FOIA efforts over the last little bit and really trying to hold the government accountable uh, here in, in Ontario and in Canada for some of the decisions they've made. And it's like, it's effortful. It takes a lot of time, but it's also this it's this feeling of like, you know, I've always believed that when you show people examples of what's happening beyond their view, their view expands. And when that view expands, they then can see the future in their present moment very differently. Um, and I think that's hopefully where, you know, a continued search for information, uh, perhaps done in a healthy way, whatever that looks like, um, knowing when to take breaks, knowing when to, um, you know, kind of just put the computer down, so to speak. And, uh, and just, you know, and relax. I mean, that's probably our, our best way forward, but it, it seems hard to say, well, let's just forget about it and move on, so to speak. Um, but going back to then uh, this, let's get into this sort of vaccine. Where, you know, where are we at in this in this moment and looking at the vaccines? What do we know now that let's say we didn't know at the beginning? Um, and the be- probably the best way to start is, is, Madhava, you said that you believe and see that um, these vaccines are inherently dangerous. Why don't you unpack what that means Uh, for you?
2: Well, just just like safety, you know, danger is a relative thing. Um, What does safe mean? Well, you know, one one adverse event out of a 1000 or one adverse event out of a million. Um, It's a relative thing. So when I say that the um, these these vaccines are inherently dangerous, um, what I mean, is number one, we, we do not know uh, actually how dangerous they are. And uh, for a number of reasons, including the fact that uh, there is no uh, controlled trial that's, that's continuing, so we're not gonna know. Moreover, adverse events are uh, underreported, and there is a general uh, and powerful tendency to not report them it's very, very difficult um, to come forward and say, look, I think I've been vaccine injured. And we also have our medical establishment that kind of looks away from vaccine as a, as a cause for adverse events. And th- there's an enormous amount of uh, double standards that are uh, in play when we talk about uh, vaccine injuries, let's say, because if, um, if someone has some sort of untoward event, a few days or a few weeks, uh, or a few months after being uh, vaccinated, there is, there's almost no way to bring this forward, um, and prove it to be a vaccine injury, unless there's a, you know, an official investigation into that particular person's case, either through an autopsy or some other invasive means, and those things are not being done. And so, it can always be looked at as well it's just a coincidence like it's not verified we don't know that that's what it is but notice that um you know applying the same standard to a vaccine's effectiveness when we say um a uh the vaccine uh, has prevented uh this many infections or this many hospitalizations that's just a mere association like we don't know we don't know that actually that's what's happening. We're just saying, well, there's a group of people here that are going to the hospital less often than another group of people here. Where's the, where's the pathology? Where's the biochemical studies that prove it? But that's the way medicine is done. But all I'm saying is that we're applying two different standards to uh, vaccine effectiveness versus vaccine safety. It's an inescapable, an inescapable um, part of doing trials and measuring uh, potential um, benefits and risks. But yet we seem to just throw all that away when we're looking at um, potential vaccine danger, Uh, because the standards for proof are way different than the standards for vaccine efficacy. Similarly, as we all know, um, when you say that a death was caused by COVID, what do we mean that it's been caused by? Well, it's like, you know, what we really mean is not deaths from COVID. We're talking about deaths with COVID. Okay, so you died with COVID. That's being counted as a uh, COVID casualty. Where's the pathology? Where's the you know absolute molecular proof that that was uh, the cause of the um, uh, of the morbidity? There doesn't have to be one. You know, when you want to assign a a casualty of COVID. You just need to have a pcr test that said you were positive within 28 days but if you want to assign a vaccine death vaccine induced injury all bets are off you need to have you know an autopsy so it's clear that this double standard is moving us towards a place of well, these things are pretty safe and they're pretty effective but we're using two different standards
0: well you touched on a a lot of different things there um Like, David, do you have anything in there that you picked out that you want to comment on?
1: Well, I definitely agree with the need to have control studies and to have control groups that are monitored and observed to see if there are any disparate health outcomes one, three, five, ten years down the line. Um, I also agree that the autopsy should be done if they know somebody died shortly after taking a vaccine, it should absolutely be an autopsy done, Um, you know. I'm not a physician, I'm not an expert in the field, so I I do read experts in the field. So that's largely where I'm getting my information from here. But um, I'll defer to a lot of what Madhava has to say, given his expertise and the fact that he's covered it. The the one thing I will say, um, I do agree that there are double standards, but I think double standards abound across the board. What do I mean by that? I agree with Madhava on the point that we're conflating those who died from COVID and with COVID, well, we're also conflating those who had an adverse event or died with the vaccine or from the vaccine. I don't see that. I don't see that kind of intellectual rigor being applied across the board when we talk about when we have the COVID discussion. And I think that's a problem because I think we, we do have to acknowledge that general population is suffering um, from bad health outcomes, particularly here in the United States. You know, Life expectancy is dropping um, and it was dropping already before the pandemic and it's gotten even worse since. So I think that, you know, again, when we, if we want to kind of scapegoat COVID-19 infection or particular vaccines, I think there's a discussion to be had there, but I think the bigger discussion to have is what is causing sort of a general malaise and an overall degradation of the health of the human body. And I think it has a lot more to do with non-COVID-19 related problems.
0: Yeah. and, and I. I think that's very interesting because, you know, so much of like I, you think of long COVID just as an example and, and you know, depending on how you define long COVID and, and obviously this is an umbrella that is uh, sometimes the, you know, the definition of long COVID comes extremely easily. And sometimes it's very obvious that someone's struggling with something, um, you know, some people are experiencing long COVID for 12 weeks after sometimes it's, you know, many months after six months and and so on. Um my the what I, like the the differences in who's experiencing this seems to come down to other underlying health conditions that they have as well, uh, extremely stressed out bodies, people who are you know overweight, people who are generally not moving around and being active, right? These are all the people that are are struggling, and um, it's interesting because during the lockdowns, I mean, we saw virtually an increase in almost everything that would negatively impact our health. We saw an increase in uh, social disconnection. We saw an increase in in people sitting around and not exercising and uh, eating worse food and, you know, not getting sunlight. Like, virtually all the things that would contribute to poor health uh, were on the table. And at the same time, and I think perhaps one of the most important factors would be exposure to other people when we're talking about, you know, Building your immune system. So being exposed to different bacteria, being exposed to different viruses that are always sort of feeding, you know, the health of your immune system, we kind of took that away. And now we're seeing potentially even the health effects of that on the table here. So I think the challenge is, and I, David, I very much agree with you here because I see in our telegram comments all the time, like, oh, this person died. Oh, well, you know, I heard they were vaccinated. Therefore, it had to have been that. But it's interesting because, when you take away the temporal relationship, which is the amount of time after the, you know, the vaccine, if you're three weeks, four weeks out, five weeks, six weeks out from your vaccination, like what's to say that it, you know, your, your, whatever problems you're having are coming from the vaccine versus coming from COVID, you know, like something that you might've had, like I still, I'm not, I'm not vaccinated. I still have effects from COVID. I have both neurological effects and stuff that, so it affects my balance and it affects my, Uh, my sense of smell uh, with particular smells. You know, I almost think if I were to get vaccinated, I could have extreme neurological problems because I'm already having so much now, right? How do we, how does one begin to go about making sense of this stuff from what you guys have come across? Like, how how do we, how do we approach this?
2: Well, this is why we have to, you know, uh, protect a large group of people in the population uh, from the vaccine, just so we know, otherwise we don't know. I mean, we can't know, that's uh, a truth. Um, uh, That's the first thing. Um, It is not so easy, uh, you know, to differentiate long haul COVID from a potential vaccine injury. And, um, you know, one myth that's out there is that well, when you have a bad adverse event uh, from a vaccine, it's gonna happen, it's gonna show up in a few days or a few weeks. That's not at all true. I mean, I, like that is a, a huge myth. Um, as you know, I, I think uh, we've spoken about before, there's not a single vaccine on the childhood schedule uh, pushed by the CDC that's been tested against the placebo, not a single one. So um, if they were, Potentially, uh, you know, have some long-term side effects. What would we see in the general population? You know, especially if we've been inoculating kids from the time they uh, enter preschool through their teens. What would we see? Well, there should be—I don't know—maybe an increase in chronic illnesses, asthma, anemia, uh, uh, attention deficits, um, allergies, environmental reactions. Are we seeing that? Absolutely. Is it due to the vaccines? I don't know. But, you know, to just sort of say, well, you know, vaccine um, side effects are uh, immediately, um, they immediately manifest is a fallacy. Um, and this particular vaccine, and you know, we're, we're, we're learning so much. You, you asked earlier, what do we know now that we didn't know a year ago? We are seeing studies come out uh, that demonstrate that there is a, an element of, of immune suppression of all things um, from T cell mediated immunity how can we explain the fact that um, you know data from uh, around the world is demonstrating that people who are vaccinated they may have a protective benefit from it from uh, death and hospitalization that's starting to wane but why are they becoming infected more readily it's it's a very very difficult um question to answer so that is um that i i want to make sure that we we hit upon that like we just don't know And it's not fair at all to say that if, if you're a year out, then you're, you're okay. Um, and I'm going to take just two seconds to go back to a question that you asked before, and David had a very thoughtful response, which was, um, around the double standards. Yes, you know, they're double standards, but what is our own government reporting? If you go back, if you go to the CDC in America, which is the, you know, uh. The institution, the agency that uh, is about public health, there's only nine vaccine deaths that are acknowledged, uh, yet in bears we have thirteen thousand. None of them have been investigated. Um, and with regard to COVID nineteen deaths, there's over a million in the United States. Yet you know, so we here in, in this in this trio that we have here, we can all acknowledge their double standards. And um, we, have, we can have a thoughtful discussion about it, but that is not what the message is coming from our institutions that are governing public health. Um, sorry to throw that in there at, the, at that moment.
1: Yeah, um, 100%. I mean, listen, I think to me, when you look at what has caused the most hazard, my view is that it's the lockdowns, it's the mandates, it's taking people away from their normal course of life, their normal activities removing economic opportunities from people, preventing them from seeing family members, locking down more vulnerable populations, particularly in more vulnerable areas of the world where they just can't get on their laptop and work. These are things that I think, when we look at the residual effects of this pandemic and the government policies that have been instituted, think have caused far more hazards than COVID-19 or the vaccines put together, in my view. now, when it comes to, you know, whether or not the vaccines are going to trigger health problems down the road, it's one thing to say we don't know and we're agnostic about that, right? It's another thing to say we do know they're dangerous. It's, going to, it's inherently dangerous. I think that's where I have a problem with that distinction model. Book. And um, and I just don't, I mean, to me, I still think, because, now you said that it's a myth that most vaccines um, that problems will persist after, you know, two, three months. It's not just that they happen in the immediate aftermath, but I'm not actually aware of, a, of vaccines where problems have surfaced with regularity years after being vaccinated. Can, can you give an example? I'm, I'm literally
2: asking because I don't know. Mm-hmm. No, that's a good question. Uh, I'll put it to you this way. Um, can you show me some data that demonstrates that vaccines uh, cause immediate um Immediate uh, side effects that are devastating. There is none, right? It's because we don't investigate it. We don't know. Okay.
1: Yeah, but that's that's a good point. And listen, I, you know, this point has been made by people I admire throughout the pandemic and their analysis that we're not, we don't have the data, and part of that I think is deliberate. I do think there is a deliberate attempt to manipulate the data. And why is that? Well, those who have set the pandemic policy are covering up their errors. And that's why I think there has to be an investigation, and this can't go away. We can't just say, hey, you know, maybe the worst of it is over. Great, let's move on. Mistakes have been made. I I think even mistakes that should necessitate people like Francis Collins and Fauci standing trial for it. That's my viewpoint. But that's very different from saying that, oh, these vaccines are... (laughs) You know, what I hear the other day, I mean, I'm hearing from people who are influencers, who have huge followings, that they're saying things like, you know, the. I remember at the onset of the pandemic, the vaccine was going to kill you within six months, right? People were literally sharing this, and then they were saying, okay, well, maybe not six months, but maybe if you get a third dose, it's going to kill you. And my my question to this is, and I know that's not what you're saying, and I want to be careful here to still man the argument on the other side, not to just straw man and pick the weakest argument. But even if you're saying that, well, there's going to be subtle problems that the vaccine is going to uncover, I, I just I don't see what the value of that is unless we have an evidentiary perspective. But if, if but if the data is not there for it, why are we extrapolating unwellness upon people? Like this was my problem with the people who were going after those who are being unvaccinated and saying, hey, you're going to be in trouble. You know, you need to be cast out from society. You're dangerous. This and that. Like, why are we wishing unwellness upon people for their personal decisions, unless there's clear data that shows, hey, this is a hazardous, dangerous product, which I don't think has been demonstrated.
2: Well, yeah, go ahead, Joe. Sorry.
0: I was just going to say, I mean, one area where I think we all agree there is there is no study being done. I mean, I feel like it's every two weeks, maybe I'm seeing another rigorous study being attempted or done or reported on about long COVID and all the details associated. We're always hearing about long COVID, long COVID, long COVID, right? Which, you know, supports the thesis that virus was so dangerous and we need to provide so much information that we possibly can to understand it and to, and to support the fact that we tried to not have people get this thing, AKA lockdowns, masks, measures, right? It's all in support of that narrative. However, you know, there's people that are going, you know what, like I know of several people who have had vaccine injuries from COVID injury from COVID vaccines. It's, it's they're without question. I mean, it's, it's immediate. It's within like, you know, 12 hours sort of thing. Um, and then there's other people who are asking questions. They don't know, right. And, and their experience of how they feel after being vaccinated, they're almost like, I wonder. And I think it's this underlying suspicion that so many people have that they're seeing and that they're, they're kind of going, why isn't this being studied? And, and you make an interesting point about, you know, wishing on wellness upon people, David, because I I think that does happen. I think that is something that I see. Like, I I know that there's camps that want to see the, the vaccinated struggle, or they almost say like, "Mm, see, that's what happens when you get vaccinated. Like I see that happen. uh, But I also see, as you said, the the way the unvaccinated are being treated, um, but I, it's a fine line to to sort of straddle because people are seeing a lack of wellness at times, and some of their friends and family who have uh, have been vaccinated, and they're going, "Well, is it possible?" Right? And and I think because we're not having, um, let's say, an authoritatively run, so like CDC, WHO, governments, you know, other health uh, bodies around the world, taking the vaccine situation seriously you've had now citizen actions, like the control group that's uh, going on around the world that has about 300,000 people, them having to put their resources and time and energy into studying this because governing bodies don't want to, which is, in my view, rather unforgivable.
1: Yeah. And just to interject for a quick second, 100% in agreement. And I'm also not ruling out that there could be problems with the vaccine down the line. I'm not saying saying that categorically. I don't know. Could be, right? But But it's different to say that there will be or that there's going to be. That's the distinction distinction I'm making. But, you know, I I think that the control group studies are, are vastly important. I also think you have to have nuance when you look at the vaccinated population. For example, not all people are the same. Not all people who get vaccinated or unvaccinated come with the same age, demographic, health condition, et cetera, et cetera, are all unique human beings. So I have issues with some of the studies that have downplayed vaccine injuries or adverse events because what they often fail to acknowledge is that most of the population that rushes out to get a vaccine are in a higher socioeconomic groups and better health overall, they have better access to food. So you're not getting an apples to apples comparison from the from the onset. And there's just a, in, until we have any kind of data we can get our bearing on, it seems to me that The best stance for us to take is to say, we need more information, more data, or to say, let's share our anecdotal experiences, which have some value, particularly in an environment when the aggregate data is so manipulated. Um, And we talked about this before, though. But I do think when you look at the aggregate data, not just from one country, but I'm talking about 50 different nations, there is a protective benefit that I see from the vaccine, particularly for vulnerable populations to stave off severity hospitalization. Does that mean that vaccines should be mandated for everybody? No, right? We're all in agreement on that. But to me, the only sensible thing moving forward is to say the public health institute institutions failed to give people informed consent. They failed to do a cost-of-benefit analysis. And who benefited from this? Not the 23-year-old you know, kid who got a vaccine who would have been fine anyway. The pharmaceutical companies are the ones who benefited from this. I think until there's an acknowledgment of the profit motive and the way that there's oligarchical control over our public health institutions and those who set public policy where we're just we're going to be fighting against windmills <clears throat>
2: um the here's the thing right um the uh, as an individual when you decide whether or not you're going to get vaccinated Um, let, let us assume that there's a protective benefit, uh, from the inoculation, however you want to define it. Does that mean you should get it? Well, that, that entirely depends on the risk. So if we have, you know, if you agree that there is some protective benefit, whether it be long-term or just for a few weeks, whatever it is, that's great. But if you don't know what the risk is, how do you make a decision? You can't. You don't, you don't know, you don't know if it's worth it or not, is all I'm saying. Um, and so I want to be very clear here. When I, when I say they're dangerous, you know, I, I, I understand um, that, uh, that is a provocative statement and I, I want to be a little bit more nuanced. Okay. Is it dangerous to drive at 90 miles an hour down the highway? I don't know. It depends on whether well, or not you. It depends. You... <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It, It depends. It depends on whether you hit a tree or not, is what I'm saying, right? It doesn't mean that you're going to die, but the risk is higher if you're driving quickly. I think there's enough data right now that demonstrates that eh, it's kind of like driving down the highway at 90. I'm not saying that you're going to die in six months or three years. I'm just saying that the risk of other things that are going to occur down the line are higher. I don't know for sure, but... What we know so far is that there's a lot of other things that are happening in your body through this mRNA injection that we still have yet to uh, uh, quantify. So that being the case, uh, it is dangerous to proceed with what we're doing is what I'm saying, because we don't actually know how it's going to play out. Therefore, it is there's your, there's inherent danger to to moving forward. And this brings us to a very uh, important um, segue or not segue, but diversion is if we can all acknowledge that yes, we don't really know what the risks are. And there, there may be some benefit. What do we do in the meantime? I understand that we all want our personal choice in this and we all are agreement that there shouldn't be any mandates. But what isn't an individual supposed to do? When like, forget about the fact that you know, you have to get an injection to be in the military or to go to work or to be in a hospital or whatever. What are you going to do personally with you and your family if you don't know what the long term risks are? Do you get injected? Even if, let's say you believe there's a perceived benefit, it's a hard question to answer. And I would say um, that, in my view, with all of these unknowns, and especially here's the bias. Let's, let's say the CDC is doing their due diligence in terms of protecting public health, okay, and they want to do the right thing. They, they have on their mission statement that they want to do good studies, objective data that's publicly available, all of that stuff. Let's say that they're uh, upholding their mission. They just approved um, the Pfizer, not approved, they authorized the Pfizer vaccine for uh, children, babies, uh, infants, and the Moderna. Now, Um, what if we now find out and it's been authorized for the five to 11 year olds for quite some time? What if now some data comes out that says, well, look, this is, this is kind of dangerous for if you're a seven year old, it's, it's dangerous. Do you think that they're just gonna say, oh, well, we have now, now we have some data that demonstrates that there's some inherent danger. We should stop, uh, the authorization. Do you think they will actually stop? authorizing it? I mean, honestly, here's the problem. If they stop and say and they rescind the authorization, imagine how many parents out there are going to go bullshit, who vaccinated their kids. Now you're saying that's no longer authorized. So and I'm, I'm, I'm you know, I'm um, speculating and I'm giving the CDC the benefit of the doubt, there is still going to be a huge incentive and pressure for them to not rescind their authorization. So everything, you know, there's so much momentum behind this vaccine campaign. And it's like, forget about nefarious intentions uh, by vaccine manufacturers that are in cahoots with the FDA regulators. It's very, very difficult to stop this. It's already moving in this direction. And I believe it's... um, It's unwise, um, given the fact that we don't know. And look, you know, we're talking about aggregate data here, aggregate data about safety. I would say possibly one of the greatest, um, the greatest uh, truth tellers in this whole thing are going to be the uh, insurance companies, because they don't give a shit about what the CDC says or what the FDA says or anything like that. They stand to lose hundreds of millions of dollars if their actuaries get it wrong. So they're going to look and, you know, they're insuring tens of millions of people. And what do we see? Yes, the lockdowns have been detrimental. The lockdowns have been unhealthy. Absolutely. Um, People were being locked down in 2020. That's when the lockdowns were the worst. You know, there was masks, like, you know, you drive down the street, you don't see anybody for, for minutes. Uh, or hours, you know, everyone was confined. And that lasted for months and months and months. But the the uh, uh, morbidity that the insurance companies are seeing are happening in 2021 after the va- vaccines rolled out. Does that mean it's due to the vaccines? No. Could it be due to the vaccines? Absolutely. What is the difference there? The difference is that now we have, you know, a vaccine program that was in full swing in 2021. So there's enough, in my mind, to to demonstrate that there is a very strong safety signal, even even though we have enormous amount of censorship around uh, vaccine injury, even though that we have you know millions of uh, adverse events reported in VARES and thousands tens of thousands of deaths reported in VAERS, that all match up temporally to the inoculation. There are so many signals coming from so many different places, and you know the three of us here, Joe, you know people that have been vaccine injured that you can't prove it through an autopsy, but it's pretty clear it was due to the vaccine. I know people like that. David, you may have a couple of people like that, but I'm just saying, when did we ever see this before? You know, I used to get flu shots. I used to, you know, all my kids are vaccinated um, with the childhood vaccines. Never saw anything like that. Never heard of anything like this. So at some point we have to say, yes, we don't know with a hundred percent certainty, but is there enough to, Take a step back and say we need to rethink this. And even if we did that, I don't think the CDC is ever going to do that. They they have too much, too many eggs in the basket right now, um, to 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 go back on their and on their edicts.
1: With the point on the CDC, 100%. I mean, I I think that there's a tendency to, uh, there's a tendency to, of of stubbornness to where they're they're not going to really give any leeway or or any credence to the fact that they've made mistakes here. I think, you know, one thing I would be with you on is stopping all vaccines for young children. Makes no sense, in my view, from what I've seen from the data, particularly when you look at their risk profile, which they seem to be at a greater risk of the flu than they are of COVID. Um, But, you know, I, I also think one of the things about this conversation that frustrates me is that we don't talk about the dangers of vaccine injury in totality with the dangers of COVID-19. So, like if we're doing that analysis on 2021, but we're not acknowledging that Delta was the most dangerous variant that caused a lot of hazard, it's hard to it's hard to make sense of it because we have to be able to juggle all of these things at the same time, right? And you know, I think also locked that you're right, lock the majority of the lockdowns were in 2020, but Shanghai is still in lockdown. I mean, there's still parts of the world, you know, that, you know, so this is something that I think will have, unfortunately, set a precedent of authoritarianism that is, again, to me, far more dangerous than, you know, the lipid nanoparticle and the spike protein. But is the, is the vaccine something that people should be, uh, I know, I, I think Madhavi used the term vaccine cautionary. Um, yes, people should be cautious of anything they put in their body. I just think the way we talk about it is interesting because, for example, as somebody you know, who believes in the value of psychedelics, right, if, if we gave an unprecedented amount of ayahuasca sessions, 12 billion to people around the world, some people are going to have horrible adverse events. Some people are probably going to die. I've been to ceremonies where people are hospitalized. Are we then going to say, hey, this is inherently dangerous? Or with a a natural indigenous vaccine like Combo, right, which people sometimes have very negative adverse events to, are we going to say that, well, this is dangerous, you shouldn't be using this? So now if you think you're not getting a benefit from ayahuasca or Combo, maybe the answer is yes. Just if you think you're not getting any benefit from the vaccine, maybe the answer is yes. There's only risk if there's no benefit, right? But I think people are, people of good faith across the board are balancing these ideas and saying, okay, if the vaccine, I think most people are looking at it like, if the vaccine can stop me from having an extra four weeks of symptoms, I'll take it because I don't think the vaccine's all that dangerous, right? People are doing that analysis, but are they taking a risk? Yeah, it's a calculated risk. So I do agree with the notion that people who say that the vaccines are 100% safe without any, you know, it's just, it's all conjecture, and n- nobody's really getting injured from this. They're not being honest. And that is dangerous because people are not making that decision then with informed consent. So I agree with them on that. My, my issue is the proportionality, again, of the discussion,
2: right? Here's the thing, right? I, I just, it, it, it seems like, look, you're right. There's proportionality here. But um, in order to actually move to change the the barge of like vaccinate everyone there has to be certainty you know people are looking for certainty like absolutely they're dangerous or absolutely they're safe if you know we throw it into this this bucket of well there's some safety and there's some danger nothing ever happens you know and uh i agree with what we've been saying especially you david that there's you know extremism on both sides um but I've been watching this for two years. And, you know, my voice about this is becoming more and more strident, uh, because I'm just becoming more and more convinced that we have to stop this. Um, And, you know, like, you know, like you said, uh, is there a benefit? Maybe, there's definitely, you know, people who uh, benefit, or at least partially benefit for a short period of time. That's I I hope we can understand that, you know, the efficacy has waned tremendously in just seven weeks, um, especially in children, yet, you know, it's being authorized for them. Does it prevent infection? No. Does it uh, prevent transmission? No. Does it prevent symptoms? Maybe for some period of time. I think that's a very, very uh, weak argument for getting vaccinated, uh, honestly, because what are you going to do next? After seven weeks, you want you want to maintain the protection. That means you're going to uh, your risk is going to be additive when you get a booster. We don't know exactly by how, much. By, yeah. by how much.
0: Would you would you say that's a weak argument for any person getting vaccinated or for just certain people?
2: There's a lot to be said for the power of belief. Um, and there are going to be some people who just feel way, way more confident if they've been completely vaccinated. And, um, you know, this is not some voodoo science uh, woo-woo bullshit that I'm pulling out of my butt. That's why we test everything against the placebo, right? And I would say that the um, placebo effect is very, very strong. Similarly, if you tell them that, you know, we're we're going to uh, uh, pull these vaccines from the market, you can't get them that's kind of like a nocebo, nocebo effect. It's like, well, I, I, without a vaccine, I'm, I'm I'm vulnerable. So, you know, what I'm saying is that, so the answer to that question, I know you're asking, you know, for like the biochemical, what does the data sh- show about this? I think this is gonna be a big, big factor in this, um, is people, you know, who believe in this, want to get the injection and that may have some protective benefit. And again, you know, I'm not making this stuff up. This is, this is how everything is tested. That's how the vaccines are tested, right? They're tested against placebo. Um, and interestingly, you know, in these vaccine trials, the placebo wing all got vaccinated after a couple of months, right? Why? I mean, they, they, were, they believed in it so much that they subjected themselves to be part of the experiment, right? I mean, they wanted the vaccine. Like, you know, they went in there like, God, I hope I get the vaccine. They didn't go in there hoping they were going to get the placebo, right? Um, So it it has a lot to do with that.
0: Just a quick moment before we get back to our conversation. If you want to support this podcast and all the work we do here at The Pulse and Collective Evolution, consider becoming a member of our Explorer Lounge. As a member, you get access to exclusive video content. You can watch all of these episodes ad-free and you get access to our private social network where you can discuss and learn about many topics with a like-minded community of change makers. It's truly an incredible place to be, not just for the benefits that you get, but you're directly supporting our dedicated team here at Collective Evolution and The Pulse. Visit explorelounge.one, that's dot O-N-E, to learn more. All right, let's get back to the show. Well, and uh, there's two things there that I that kind of stick out to me, which, you know, again, get into that sort of murky water. But it's but it's it's super important conversation, which is, you know, on one hand, we're talking about placebo power of belief. We've terrorized, uh, you know, a global population for two years, uh, whereby tons of people um, perhaps, I don't know let's conservatively say 60% of the global population, maybe 50% of the global population. Um, maybe not. I mean, we're getting into some massive populations in India and China. I don't know how they feel. But when I look at, you know, more westernized countries that, that we've had a lot of access to their information, and um, there's a lot of people who are obviously very, very afraid. And like you said, if you pull out that that vaccine or you pull out the mask, suddenly they're still freaking out. And that's, you know, that's a big um, piece to the puzzle, And you also mentioned, though, this idea of certainty and how powerful certainty can be on one side or another. And this is actually a question I've been wrestling with a lot, which is the idea of literally exactly what came out of your mouth is is, you know, can we move things without a sense of certainty? Right. Can we move things? Can people actually take action on something in a small group, in a medium group, in a big group, in a global group, um, if there isn't a really, really hard push behind it. And and why that's such an important question is here we are all trying to search for nuance, all trying to search for um, clarity in a sense, all trying to find, you know, the fact that not everything is as black and white. And there's even this cultural uh, desire to move out of this black and white thinking and into more of this nuanced understanding of things. But at the exact same time, there's an old culture and perhaps a, a paradigm that only knows black and white and only can move black and white. So the question here is, is, and this is kind of just we can spitball because I don't know if we have an answer. Um, you know, are we seeing, do we have enough people who are looking for that nuanced conversation that it will actually matter? Or is black and white the only thing that's going to work for perhaps even 10 or 15 years to come?
1: Yeah, Joe, it's a a really profound thought and question. And I think it also requires us to look back at ourselves and say, are we contributing to a discussion that's just going to be polarized and discussed only in black and white terms? Or are we actually engaging in discussion that's building bridges that is transcending that And this is where this discussion is so important, because one thing I I wish everyone would consider is divorcing yourself from old ideologies, particularly ideologies that that really don't serve you anymore. And we talked about this in terms of the need to have basic universal principles or even metaphysical principles that we all can agree on as human beings. And we talked about this previously in one of our offline discussions about bodily autonomy, right? Meaning, I... Have the, I have the bodily integrity to decide what goes into my body or even what comes out of my body in the woman's case, right? And where you see, where you see the breakdown of this is when you're looking at different cultural pockets and I- ideological pockets where bodily autonomy means one thing related to vaccines, but it means something different related to abortion. But if we can't kind of rally together in universality and say, hey, listen let's put these ideo- ideological divides to the side for a second and say that we don't even have to agree on everything, but we can agree on some basic universal principles. That brings us at least one step away from, have, from waging this ideological war that's always fought in the black and white. And to me, if we can't, if we can't even check our own ideology sometimes and, and recognize those areas where we have those self-contradictions, which we all do, And partially because of the information we're consuming. I mean, there are many discussions like this, let's be real, that are are happening. And if they are happening, are they getting views? Are they being shared? Are they going viral? Right? And that kind of gives us a sense of where people's appetite is at. People like junk food, right? But what does it take for us to get to a place where people crave something a little bit more wholesome? Right? And that's a a tough question. And I don't have a great answer for you.
2: Um, the certainty, I I think, is uh, what's required. I don't think we're ever going to do anything different unless um, people are very sure. And and this is how it's being distorted. If I if I were to say to you, uh, and I, I think this is what our government is saying is like, look, there could be some dangers with these vaccines, let's say. But there is a 60% chance, let's say, I'm just making this number up. There's a 60% chance that if you get vaccinated in the long run, you're gonna do better, right? 60%, is that certain? Absolutely not. That's like, you know, it's basically like this. Should you take the vaccine? Absolutely. With 60%, why should I not take the vaccine? I'm certain that that is the logical thing to do. You see what I'm saying? So the certainty, is 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 the foundation by which we do things. It's like that is absolutely. I may I might get screwed in this, but clearly at this point, knowing what I know, the chances are better if I take the vaccine, and therefore I can be a hundred percent certain that that's the right thing to do. That's how we, we think about things. Like, of course, there's no certainty around. You know, am I going to be the one person that gets you know uh, injured by this or whatever? We know that, but if everyone is saying, look, this is the right thing to do, this is this is uh, what we're recommending, it's got our authorization, that's the right thing to do. The people who go along with this um, uh, narrative believe with 100% certainty that this is the right thing to do. They don't go into it like, oh, well, I'm not really sure, but go ahead. You know? Uh, so in order to, especially like you're saying, David, to like you know, dropping your ideology you have to be very certain uh, about something to say, oh, I'm just gonna like, you know, throw down everything that I've, you know, believed in from a long time in order to op- look at things openly. Someone has to give you some piece of information that says, holy cow, it obviously requires me to drop my ideology at this point, for sure, to examine this. So I, I, I think that, uh, most of us are driven by certainty and um, that's what's so difficult.
0: Well, we can play with this a little more too. I I, I have a question though, uh, just quickly like with regards to that is are you more so pointing to the idea that it's more questioning how we arrive at that certainty that's important right now? Like, like knowing within ourselves it's a self-awareness of how we arrived at that certain question. Like you gave the example ultimately of you know, somebody who's saying, well, this is logical because the percentage is higher. It wasn't a overly convincing percentage, but the percentage was higher. I can see that I arrived at my certain decision based on that data. And that's what it was, Um, which we all know when we now take that and put it into the COVID conversation, it's extremely complicated. Um, But that's kind of what I'm hearing what you're saying is we make decisions based on certainty, but it may not be certainty in every single factoid but it's more so certainty in that I can see the logical progression through which I decided to make the decision. That's what you're essentially saying.
2: I think so. I, I guess what I'm saying is that, um, the, the logical steps that, that, uh, result in a 60%, you know, benefit are things that most people don't think about. Let, let's be very, very clear. Right. So, you know, we just, we just hear, so, so what is the answer? Get to the bottom of the line. Should I, or shouldn't I? That's, that's what it is. And so, um, uh, you know, even if all those, even if all of that methodology that arrives at that number is in fact true, no one's going to look at it. Uh, not no one. I mean, most people don't look at that, right? And and, and when they hear uh, that, you know, Rochelle Walensky is saying you should get it, vaccinate your children. We we've, we've approved it or we've authorized it. It's now available to you. You should get it. They don't. They don't look at the trials. You know, they they don't listen to the, to the, you know, the um, advisory committee meetings, you know, I'm, I would imagine that most people have never even heard about what the, uh, uh, what these committee meetings are like. And, you know, I've sat through these things, the people, the people who are making the decision, honestly, like, there's like a dozen people listening in, they all get to weigh in, they're being flashed, like, huge amounts of data, for like 5, 10, 12 seconds and then another, another slide, another slide, another slide. There is no possible way, honestly, that they can interpret what is being shown to them. And you just watch this, uh, you know, progression of like, oh, I guess, well, no one's asking any questions, so that it must be okay. And occasionally you'll have one of these advisory uh, doctors or scientists say, well, tell me more about this. And then it just gets brushed aside. And I, I, like I'm sitting, this, sitting here listening to these things with like eyes wide and my mouth covered going, holy cow, didn't you wanna ask more about that? Or what about this? So even um, my point here is that even in these rarefied um, executive uh, uh, professional expert meetings, they're not actually looking at the methodology to, to the extent that they should be. I mean, these are people that are making decisions that affect hundreds of millions of people and um, they're not uh, they're not doing it. So how can we expect the average person to say, oh, well, 60 percent. So show me all the logic and the data. They don't do that. They just they just say, oh, it's Rochelle Walensky. So I'm certain I'm going to do it. Why would she lie to me? You know,
1: so. But yeah, the reason I am laughing is because um, I think what typifies what Madhav is saying uh, really accurately is when you look at the Supreme Court of the United States, which is supposed to be the bastions of superior logic purportedly, right? When Justice Sotomayor was sort of opining on the danger and and, and calculating the danger of COVID nineteen to children, I mean, she grossly overestimated it. This is somebody who's supposed to be armed with the facts. And even on the flip side, Neil, uh, Justice Neil Gorsuch grossly overstated how many people die from the flu every year. So, if these two people are getting basic things so badly wrong, what what can we extrapolate from that? What what we how can we expect the average person to make sense of data that is manipulated or even worse being presented in bad faith, which is not covering all the bases as Madhava is suggesting aren't being covered when they're going through these, um, clinical trials, having these discussions on whether to authorize something. I mean, it's, um, yeah, so I, i am completely in agreement on that point.
0: So here's where it gets interesting, right? Is because, you know, we have this, uh, you know, we have this moment where we recognize, hey, we're all busy, we're all doing our thing, right? We, we live in a collective, in a sense, a communal society to some, to some degree, whereby, you know, we rely on our collective intelligence. It's impossible for one individual to, to, to wade through all of what's out there. We need each other. We need different expertises. We need all these things to come together. Now... If you were to look at that, and you were to say, "Well, there are so many of us who believe that what happened uh, during COVID, which in you know misinformed these Supreme Court judges, which, which misinformed arguably media pundits and and by nature so many people in the world, we basically had something break. Something happened there that 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 broke those basic facts from getting to people. Now, you look at nature, and you look at say mushrooms, for example, or fungi. They have all these these." connective, you know, uh, uh, strings beneath the, beneath the soil that are essentially all connected and telling each other, look out for this toxin, that thing. And it's just spread across, you know, massive, massive amounts of a, of a forest per se, just for, uh, you know, uh, visualization. So you have this intelligence that one mushroom can say something connected to all the other mushrooms. And there isn't this, uh, let's say ego in the way that's going to go, well, I'm not going to trust that mushroom. Whereas here, here as humans, we have this moment where we rely on this collective intelligence, yet we're seeing it wrong so often. And so you, you got to ask the question, what's the way out? You know, what do we do? How do we become the mushrooms again? Nature is, is telling us what the answer is. And here we are unable to, to replicate it.
2: That's awesome. Yeah, great, great metaphor uh yeah you know um do you guys watch star trek the next generation at all (laughs) yeah uh well you know there's well there's this civilization called the borg right Right. uh have a square spaceship that's like way more powerful than the enterprise and what's interesting about them is that they have this unified um uh their minds are all connected and there's no ego involved anymore. It's mm-hmm. like a collective. It's called a bore collective, right? It's it's kind of like the mycelium that you're talking about. The strands uh, of the mushrooms going everywhere, and each element is sort of announcing to everybody else, "This is what I'm finding here. We should we should be pulling back from this piece of soil because there's a lot of you know what a, um, uh, yeah. bad elements around here. So let's move over there." We don't have that at all. We absolutely don't have that at all. We don't have a collective intelligence. We have uh, a top-down, this is what is. And, you know, I, I, I sort of sense that this is a transition period in this conversation where we're going a little metaphysical. Um, <laughs> but that I, that's where we're headed. We have to be headed there, um, w- where we all can rely on our own uh uh, wits and intuition to figure things out and here's the here's the real interesting point here is that um, Everybody has it everybody has this ability, you know, it's it's a matter of getting our own uh, Ego or our own ideology out of the way and just sort of saying, okay, you know, what, what's really going on here let's just look at it openly and uh, we're, we're, you know, it's an embryonic stage we're in right now as a, as a, um, population, we have not been exercising that at all. We've been told that in order to be saved, uh, to attain salvation or safety, you must follow the rules. And I believe that that's going to be, um, the, the biggest, uh, uh, change that we should look forward to is when we start having some faith in ourselves. And that doesn't mean believing me or you it's about like, look, you know, feel your body and stay still and see what's driving you to believe this or that. Um, that's going to be the most important thing as we look, not just to the next two years, but to the next 200 years.
1: Yeah. Very, very well said. I mean, you know, one thing I do hope that starts trending is people having more goodwill towards each other as well, because. COVID-19 is here to stay, right? I think we can all do whatever this virus is. Now, I happen to believe it was probably a lab leak, but regardless of how you feel it originated, spike protein is going to be in the human body. It's going to be something the human body has to deal with, right? Um, Do we believe that we are resilient enough to be able to overcome this? Or do we think that COVID-19, the vaccines, are going to be so insurmountable to the human body that it's we're never going to be the same. And this is where I think also our approach is important because, as we also agree, COVID-19 is just one of many hazards that we deal with in life. And if we don't really have faith in each other or our ability to heal collectively or our ability to experience dynamic health, That speaks a lot about how we feel about ourselves and each other. And also, if our response to something like COVID-19 is to now make people afraid to hug each other or to go anywhere without a mask on or to completely disrupt your life, what does that say about our ability to be resilient as a species to deal with a world where there are many dangers and hazards in it? So I would love to see not just people get out of their echo chambers, but get into a place where they're saying, hey, listen, I'm going to hear your argument in good faith and I'm also gonna wish you goodwill and good health. I don't know if I've ever seen people who are coming from this trying to score points actually genuinely wishing that upon each other. And to me, that's a virus that is far more transmissible and dangerous than COVID-19. Yeah, well said.
2: Mm
0: -hmm. I was just gonna say it's it's interesting because you know this idea of that I think a lot of us share and, and you know I think we've shared for for a lot of years over a decade for sure of of this sort of embryonic stage of human beings if you will where we're kind of turning turning back maybe or turning on at a collective level this more uh, metaphysical connection this this intuition this access to a a sixth sense or what you know there's so many different ways of of, of you know, sort of quantifying and, and talking about what this is and what this can be. Um, but, you know, but I think back, you know, as much as we feel that way, it's like I question, I'm like, you know, um, for so much of the history that we understand, um, you know, the sages of the past, the the philosophers of the past and, and you know, the brilliant thinkers and, and people, the shamans, the, you know, all the people who had access, uh, the seers, um, you know, they were always in the few. Um, and you know, the question now is, how when, when you now have a material world that, that, that looks upon these old ideas as nothing more than you know, woo-woo nonsense, um, how do you get you know, the, the collective? Like, are we really going to move to that time? Um, how do you get people to embrace this idea that there is something more when we're so bought into that empirical world and, and it's only seemed to be getting stronger and stronger and stronger of a push? At what I'm asking is, do you guys sense an evolutionary pressure that is asking people to open up or awaken to something more about themselves?
2: I do, I I, I do, and um, you know, it, it comes in the stressors upon that view. Um, in other words, you know, what I would say is, uh, <clears throat> let me speculate for the first time in this conversation. Um, if 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 we were to say this is, you know, an idea that I'm sure many people have uh, considered in the audience, you know, what, what was the point of this week, like, let's assume that it was, you know, lab origin, like, what was the point really to make us all sick to make a lot of money for uh, Pfizer, perhaps, but uh, there could be, a, a, you know, a, a more um, uh, foundational um, uh, purpose to this, we talk about control. I would say that the um, you know if, if, if we believe in a cabal or a, a you know an oligarchy of technocrats or whatever, how how does such a small number of people control a vast population of uh, uh, a vast population on our globe? Um, it has to come through you know division, and then the um, incursion of authority in between these groups. So we have large nation states, which are now starting to break down. And then we have, you know, uh, the uh, the division of our ideology uh, politically uh, or religious basis. And I would say that, you know, the, the, the next stage of intervening in, in our humanity is to create fear amongst each other in our own family or in the in the, in in the grocery store or waiting for a train, it's like, whoa, 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 you know, take stay six feet away from me, man. You know, I, I don't want you that close to me and you're not wearing a mask and you're now the enemy. And, you know, it is a gradual, uh, incursion into our humanity in terms of like, it's about separating us and wedging themselves in between us and it was done masterfully in the last two years. I mean, like, look what's going on right now. I mean, we're, there was a time where you, you, you would walk into a bank with a mask on and suddenly, you know, you know, who do you do like are you trying to rob us? And now it's like, oh, you can just you know, put on a huge mask and say, hey, I'd like to make a withdrawal, please. I mean, what has happened? Right. This is all, you know, is it part of the plan? I don't think it's reasonable to take uh, unreasonable to put it on the table as that that was the intent. Um, so uh, what, what is the what is the point of a single mushroom with a couple of strands of mycelium? If it's not connected to the collective, it, it, it doesn't serve its role anymore. It offers nothing and it will die. Um, and so we need to be holding each other in love and we need to be communicating uh, with open hearts especially when we disagree with the other person. And this is where you know, the, the, the First Amendment is so important. Do you understand that we have to defend the people who disagree with us? Like, where has that gone? Have we really just surrendered? Uh, uh, that right, that that was a really difficult, difficult, uh, individual right to grant to people in a population 240 years ago. And we're just throwing it away as if it meant means nothing uh, out of danger I mean this is you know our our founding fathers are uh, rolling in their graves guys because like every the most important things were like, ah you know whatever second amendment, first amendment let's just throw them all away now
1: yeah, absolutely I mean the breakdown of of sort of the value we place in those universal principles is is part of the division I think you're talking about. And I think is something that's preventing us from getting to the next stage of our evolution. Because Joe, you talked about if there's an evolutionary pressure that's going on right now, I think there is. I think there's a lot of discomfort, but there's a lot of potential for growth from what's happening. I mean, from an ex, from an exoteric perspective, COVID-19 um, revealed a lot of flaws and failures in in our overall system, whether it's supply chain, inequality, um, even our whole relationship to work, all of these things were exposed in COVID-19. But from an esoteric perspective, breakdowns in society like this, global catastrophes, do create that evolutionary pressure to also make us take a metaphysical approach and say, well, really what's important here? What, you know, take an existential approach. And that's why I think you're seeing more and more people have conscious awakenings to where they're actually re- they're questioning their entire reality, right? And this has happened, I think, for many people over uh, the course of the past two, three decades in particular. But you're seeing a lot of that happening. And a lot of that happens through a shock, right? You're shocked and you're shocked out of your normal way of living. And that that causes you, through discomfort, to have to question things. And I think that's a healthy process we're going through. But I think if we don't, sort of supplement that with what Madhav is saying with a love for each other and a love for just living and also a love for seeing people live in abundance, seeing people live in a way where they have the free space to explore all, all of these ideas without censorship, without being judged, without being exploited by people who want to kind of take their conscious awakening and direct it into an unhealthy place. These are where we're all, we all have to take the responsibility to be custodians of our own consciousness and... YouTube brothers certainly do that, so I salute you for that.
2: Thanks. Uh, look, no, that's not that's it. That's all. There's a lot more to say here. First of all, um, <laughs> uh, thank you, David, because I, I got lost in that. That, that is absolutely right. Um, and uh, it, the question was about evolutionary pressure, and if we assume that uh, the people who conjured up this thing, that was their goal, is to break us apart. They took a huge risk. Because when you apply that kind of pressure to a natural system, it's either going to succumb to it or it's going to, uh, transcend it. And that's where we have to be very careful because, you know, as we are, you know, uh, producers of content, you have to come at this with love first, because otherwise we've lost, you know, at the very, very, at the end of the game, we've lost. If like, if we make enemies talking about these things, we've lost. We have to make friends doing this. We have, you know, that's, that is the antidote to what's happening.
0: Yeah. And interestingly, that's been one of the, the areas of, of challenge is, uh, if I'm being fully honest, I've, I've struggled being uh, a content creator and being a part of the alternative community, if you will, uh, for the last couple of years, because I've, I've, you know, kind of been noticing that the hate towards the you know what are often called the normies or the sheep or the people who are vaccinated or whatever people want to say has been so extreme and i'm like well i, I don't think that way I, I i feel awkward seeing these comments seeing this hate seeing this you know so much division and 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 you know with our particular work where you know and i know you guys align this way too you know there's always this effort um to connect with people on uh, on a more meaningful way and and, and, and understand them and respect them and, and all these sorts of pieces to the puzzle and try and produce content in a way that isn't creating that polarization. Um, but it's, you know, even still to this day, I meet up with people at times and there's a lot of, um, oh, I, I can't believe these people. I can't believe that people. And, and it's almost like it's it's unsettling to, to not say, you know, why do you feel that way about people? Like it's hard to just let People just say that about, like, I'm not saying there's something wrong with people for judging other people. It's not, I don't take that approach at all, but I like to ask people, you know, why is it that you feel that way? Like literally about your family or your neighbor or something like that. And I think that's like a, a really powerful reflection point for, you know, so many of us who have that let's say that anger or that judgment towards, um, you know, those who have even gone against us, let's say as people, um, Oh, maybe they attacked those who question COVID. Maybe they attacked the unvaccinated, you know, does it feel good to want to attack back? Um, maybe it does for you, or maybe it's maybe, maybe that's just creating more of a division and more of a, uh, of an unhealthy society. And, and, you know, why do we do that? You know, why do we resort to, to that defensiveness that attacking back that tribalistic judgment that that can so quickly come um and i've you know i've, I've just been playing with that with a lot of people and and you find pretty quickly that people see f- pretty fast that they're actually being just as divisive as the people that they're they're hating on
1: yeah 100 percent. i mean you can't have a fight without a willing opponent throwing punches back right so it's you know and and yeah i mean i, I think that also speaks to you know we have to acknowledge that a lot of people are also in pain. There's a lot of hurt out there from not just things related to COVID-19, but just, I think, people trying to find their bearing and find their foundation in a very chaotic world. Um, and yeah, it becomes that much more difficult to do that if, we're, if we feel like we're constantly, you know, throwing solvos back and forth with each other based on our ideology or our vaccine status. And I think fundamentally, if you talk about the evolutionary pressure, if we can't pass that test. <laughs> right, if we can't pass the test to to get beyond that and find the commonality and, and universalism in each other. Then, yeah, maybe we we do need to fight it out with some of these um, you know more primordial energies, right? Before we can actually get there. <laughs> mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. Well said, Ladova.
2: uh I would like to say that you know. Uh, again, if, if we're if we're looking at a um, freedom versus control battle that's happening right now, um, the, the controllers, they need a reason to uh, implement more control uh, to justify it. And so, you know, one way to do that is um, to manufacture a threat, or to instigate uh, the population into screaming so that they can shut us up. And, you know, a great way to, to get half the population to scream is to, uh, censor them, you know, relentlessly, um, and, um, for a long time. And eventually they're going to start screaming. And then you can say, Oh, look at those you know, screaming idiots over there, shouting lies, they need to be censored even more. So uh, they're testing us in many ways. It's not easy to look at someone in the eye that is completely um, yelling at you or disagreeing with you and just look at them with forgiveness, um, and just not scream back. So again, it's evolutionary pressure, spiritual evolutionary pressure that's happening right now. And it's very important how we respond to what's going on. We can't, um, use their tactics and, you know, they did it to me so I can do it to you. Uh, or, you know, you, you attack me in this manner unfairly. So I'm going to attack you in the same manner unfairly, tit for tat. I mean, we know that it all has to end in forgiveness eventually. Otherwise it's just, this, you know, constant, I'm, 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 you know, I deserve, to demand reparations for you for what you did and then now you're pissed off at me and then it goes back and forth and back and forth at some point one side has to say it's okay don't worry about it like i understand that you're you're acting from ignorance and pain and uh, i don't take it personally and let's move forward if we do that then we're going to win
0: so why don't we why don't we end it off with this last question here given what was just said, um, because I think it's very profound and I very much agree with it, but the critique is often this. um, How do you, you know, sit with what we've all just said and um, deal with the critique of, well, that sounds like pacifism? Well, I mean, (laughs) I think that, I think
1: people have, a misconception of what it takes to be evolutionary, revolutionary, or somebody who is um, even a warrior of of peace or change, if you will, like, you know, the critique that, oh, that's just pacifism. Well, what what would they suggest? Are they suggesting we take up arms and fight a nuclear power with the most advanced military (laughs) on earth, just with, you know, a few muskets and rifles? Um the real war is being waged in our consciousness. So even if our physical bodies, if a couple of people we admire are gone, their ideas remain and, and the legacy of their conscious contributions to society remain. And that is where the evolutionary and even the revolutionary energy is to me. So, you know, but also you're not, you know, if, if your response to everything is more conflict, or more violence or you know, destroying the foundation of everything, you better be prepared to actually build a foundation on top of what has been destroyed. And I think that requires a maturity and, and a level of wholeness that not a lot of people who wanna just destroy everything I think are prepared to do. And I think it also speaks to um, the responsibility we each have to wield the freedoms we have. And we talked about the first amendment earlier It reminds me, you know, John Adams, somebody I admire. He was an abolitionist, obviously a founding father. He lamented at the end of his life that he had lost connection with the people closest to him. His family, even his wife, Abigail, who had a very close relationship. The things he wanted to do because he was preserving the freedoms and the freedom of us to even have this exchange, which in some parts of the world we can't even have. Right. So and he said, you know, if generations down the line they're not utilizing the freedoms that we've preserved, I will regret preserving those freedoms. So I think that actually brings us to a different conversation when it comes to exercising our First Amendment rights or utilizing the freedom we have to disagree or even fight with people if we want to. Is in terms of asking ourselves, this is this really the best version of myself that I want to put out put out there? Meaning. If I'm just peddling known information, misinformation, because I know it's provocative, is that the best use of my time? Or if I'm somebody who is pro censorship because I don't like that person's viewpoint, am I living up to the standard of what people before us have fought and died to preserve for us today? And back to your question on pacifism, you know, peace always feels better than war. People who have grown up in war will always say they would have done anything to prevent that from happening again. So I actually would direct that question back to the, to the person criticizing and saying, oh, well, that sounds pacifist. Well, have you ever witnessed war? <laughs> have you ever experienced war firsthand? Because it sounds like a naive person who's never actually seen the consequences of war, who would criticize somebody for trying to find peace, cohesion and harmony amongst us.
2: Yeah, I think that um, that we have to be clear about what the goal is. Um, And so when we say uh, that, Oh, look, you know, all this forgiveness stuff, you're not going to get anything done, uh, because you're just, you know, trying to keep the peace or whatever. And there's, there, there is a, I think, uh, a wrong understanding of what the goal really is. And not not that the, like I know what the goal is, but when we say, look, we need to get X done and whatever way possible, then we succeed. That's usually not the goal. And you know, it, it speaks to what David said before. It's a, it's a spiritual consciousness war that we're at right now. It's about if you are engaged in a uh, altercation or a struggle with someone it's not about pinning them down. It's about fighting fairly. Um, that is really the test. And, you know, I, 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 I talk about this example. I, I'm sure we probably talked about it before. It's like, you know, you're, we're, we're in this boat and we're, we're the captain of the boat. And you have a bunch of people rowing, they're, they're holding they're manning, the oars. And they're a bunch of kids and they're just confused and they don't know how to follow instructions. And they're just, you know, slapping the water and the the oars in the water and the boats going in circles. And you're like, okay, well, I love you kids. You know, have your fun. You don't want to listen. Even though I want to get across the other side of the river, you know, maybe we'll get there, but I'm not going to pull out my whip and start telling you to do things because I love you. And then you realize that the river is taking you down to the rapids very quickly. And there's a huge waterfall that we're all going to perish. And now we have, I have some skin in the game too. It's not a matter of like, well, patience. It's like, if you don't get your oars together and start rolling in that direction, we are all going over the waterfall and we're all going to die. We have to understand that still It is about maintaining love. We have to be willing to go over the waterfall and still love the people that we're with, even though we disagree with them. Once we can establish that as the primary goal, then we have come someplace as a species. Like we have to regard our tormentors with forgiveness. I remember hearing about this sometime before in my past. I don't know if you guys heard that before, but there's a lot of truth to that. And um, it is actually the foundation for a new beginning, I think. Um, So that's, that's my, that's how I would answer that. Yes, work your hardest, fight fairly, but you know, bring forth 100%. Don't break the rules and um, address your uh, aggressors with um, uh, love and with firmness in your position. So you don't have to be passive. You can be extremely active, but fight fairly.
1: Yeah, very well said. And then just one caveat I put on top of that is you know, sometimes we, I think in society, we mistake anxious energy or just somebody moving in all types of directions as progress. Where, in effect, if you're moving in the wrong direction, being still is actually more productive than moving in the wrong direction, right? So I think sometimes, you know, passivity sometimes it's necessary. Sometimes you have to take a step back, ground yourself so that you can accelerate more dynamically in the, in the, right, in the direction you want it going, right? So, um, but yeah, it's, it's a very important question and uh, good to be with you brothers. You too.
0: Yeah, yeah, just uh, at the end of the day, it kind of sounds like it's one of those things where, how do you know you're going in the right direction? And if you can't take a moment to stop and feel that and know that, and perhaps communicate it even with other community members that got to go with you, then, uh, then, then we may be headed down the wrong path. So there's, there's something to, like you said, that, that groundedness and that, that, that stillness and that, that here um, moving effectively from there. So well said both of you, as always, it was a pleasure. I'm sure we'll continue our offline conversations and then probably work our way back onto one of these down the road. But, uh, Thank you both. It was, uh, it was a pleasure.
1: Yeah, it was wonderful being with you. It was good to see your faces. And hey, you know, now it looks like we can do this in person sometime. So I look forward to yeah, that. Yeah, me
2: too. Yeah, great yeah, questions, Joe. Well, great moderating. And uh, always a pleasure to talk with both of you. Well, that's
0: it. That's all. I hope you enjoyed the show. As always, I want to thank the members of the Explorer Lounge who are helping us to continue doing this work. If you want to support this podcast and all of the work we do here at The Pulse and Collective Evolution, consider becoming a member of our Explorer Lounge. As a member, you get access to exclusive video content. You can watch all of these episodes ad-free, and you get access to our private social network where you can discuss and learn about many topics with a like-minded community of changemakers. It's truly an incredible place to be, not just for the benefits that you get, but you're directly supporting our dedicated team here at Collective Evolution and The Pulse. Visit explorelounge.one, that's dot O-N-E, to learn more.